We're looking tonight at uh, verses 53 to 65 of Mark 14. So we're almost to the end of this chapter. And uh, we're focusing tonight on um, the, whether you want to call it the beginning of Jesus' trial or sort of the preliminary to Jesus' trial. Um, This is right after Jesus has been betrayed by Judas, arrested uh, by the soldiers and and men with clubs and swords who'd come uh, out to arrest him. And uh, now he's going to be brought before the religious leaders um, in preparation for bringing him before Pilate with some kind of charge that they hope will stick. So here's what happens, uh, verses 53 to 65 says, And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. (coughs) Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. So we know that the religious leaders um, had been seeking for quite some time to get rid of Jesus. They wanted to arrest him. They wanted to kill him. This has been their long-standing plan. And uh, more recently, as the Passover was approaching, uh, they were trying to work out a way to arrest Jesus, but they didn't want to do it during the feast because they knew people would be all excited and be there are a lot of people in town that aren't normally there in Jerusalem, and there'd be... Um, heavy potential for a riot or some kind of uprising. But when Judas came to them and offered to betray him to them, that was better than anything they could have hoped for as far as pulling off their scheme. So they set up a time and a place. Judas betrayed Jesus, and he was arrested. And now uh, we're told in verse 53 that they led Jesus to uh, the high priest. So there's no... um, At this time in Israel... There's no, um, there's no real king, right? Now there's Herod and what you know. There's people that have been put in place by the Romans to sort of govern the people. Um, 
but there's no there's no like David, there's no Hezekiah, there's no central respected figure uh, functioning as the king of Israel. But the high priest probably comes pretty close to a a single figure who holds um, religious and political authority. And so they bring Jesus uh, before the high priest, and then it says that the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. So this is all kinds of of all different sorts of leaders uh, in the community. And verse 55 says uh, the chief priests and the whole council, right? So that would be the Sanhedrin, um, that ruling council of uh, Israel. So they've all gathered together to uh, figure out what they're going to do with Jesus. And um, in the midst of that, we're told in verse 54 that Peter had followed Jesus at a distance and he had come as far as the courtyard of the high priest and was sitting out there in the court warming himself by the fire. So we know that all the disciples scattered from Jesus, including Peter, despite his uh, assertion that he would die with Jesus if necessary. Um, He uh, scattered like all the others, but he didn't stay scattered. He started following Jesus at a safe distance, you know, to see what was going to happen, perhaps to see if he could be of any use. We don't know what was going on in Peter's mind, but he's uh, right outside where all these proceedings are taking place. Verse 55 says that they were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. So they already decided what they wanted to do, right? They wanted to put him to death, and they were looking for people who could give them the kind of testimony that would bring that verdict, right? So they were looking for witnesses who would say something that would um, be worthy of death about Jesus and give them a charge that would stick not only uh, in front of the Jews, but also in front of the Romans as they brought him before Pilate. So they are seeking witnesses against Jesus, but they couldn't find any. They couldn't find any people who could um, give a sufficient uh, witness against him in order to convict him of something. Um, Verse 56 says, uh, explains why this was, right? For many bore false witness against him. But their testimony did not agree. So they had plenty of people who were willing to make up things about Jesus, uh, but they couldn't get their story straight, right? They couldn't agree in what they were accusing Jesus of. Now, um, that's a weighty statement, right? That they had many who bore false witness against him because uh, that's one of the Ten Commandments, right? We usually summarize it as, you know, don't lie when we're teaching it to children. But literally it says, do not bear false witness against your neighbor, right? And this, this is the kind of thing it's talking about. You don't go to court and make an accusation against somebody else that's false. You don't lie under oath and say things about people uh, that aren't true in order to get them convicted and get them in tr- That's a serious offense. But there were plenty of people, apparently, who were willing to make false charges against Jesus, just not enough of them who could say the same thing. 
So they weren't, they were having trouble coming up with the kind of witnesses that would um, make this an open and closed case like they wanted it to be. Um, Mark gives us an example of some of the things that were being said. Verse 57 says, Some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. So apparently you had several people saying something about Jesus destroying and rebuilding the temple, but they couldn't get that story straight either. Um, Now, Jesus did say something like this. He didn't say this, but he said something like this. Remember in John chapter 2, when Jesus cleanses the temple, and they say, by what authority do you do these things? Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they said, you know, What are you talking about? You know how long it's taken to build this temple? And John tells us that Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. In other words, he was talking about his death and resurrection. You kill me, I'll raise it up, then you'll know I have the authority to cleanse the temple. What these folks are saying is that Jesus said he himself would destroy the temple, the man-made one, and would rebuild or build another temple not made with hands, maybe a heavenly temple. You know, I don't know really, we don't really know. Um, it's hard to be certain, but um, that's, we have, that's not what Jesus said. Right? Jesus didn't say that he would destroy the physical temple and then raise up a different kind of temple. <clears throat> but you can see where they would get that, right? You can see how everybody who's, you know, ever had their words mixed up by somebody else, two or three people down the line, you know how that happens, right? Um, So that's the closest, apparently, that they could get to getting a charge against Jesus that um, that might stick. But even there, they couldn't get the people to agree. So the high priest uh, resorts to uh, tactic, you you know, if you watch... uh, you know, lawyery kind of shows, or you read, you know, lawyery kind of books. Maybe you've seen this tactic before. Well, you can't get, you can't get the evidence you want from the witnesses. So what do you do? You go after the suspect and try to get them to confess. Right. So that's what he does in verse sixty. As the high priest stood up in the midst of Jesus, midst and asked Jesus, "Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you?" So we we can't get them to agree. But we still want you to respond to the accusations. Well, a smart person doesn't respond to false accusations that won't stick and can't agree. And Jesus was wiser than any of the rest of us. He kept his mouth shut. But the high priest right, is trying to provoke him, trying to get him to say something that would be incriminating. Like if we can't get the witnesses to agree in order to incriminate you, uh, incriminate you then maybe if we um, get you to respond to what they're saying, you'll say something that will incriminate yourself. Maybe we can get in front of all these witnesses and we can get you to say something <clears throat> that would be blasphemous or whatever, then maybe we could trap you that way. But verse 61 says, He remained silent and made no answer. He doesn't respond to any of these false accusations. He has no need to defend himself. Um, And in this way, he fulfills uh, part of the prophecy in Isaiah 53. You know, the prophecy where it says that he was uh, crushed for our iniquities, you know, and and, uh, 
you know, by his stripes we are healed and so forth. In that chapter in Isaiah 53, 7, it says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And it doesn't mean that Jesus never said anything during all this that went on. Obviously, he did. But it is indicating that um, he's not going to be crying crying foul and, you know, all this kind of stuff like most of us probably would be, you know. Um, he just He's just taking it. He's not responding to the false accusations, but he's also not um, complaining about this being an unfair trial and all those kind of things. He's, he's silent. So the high priest tries again in the middle of verse 61. It says, again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? That just means the Son of God. There are ways they tried to get around saying God's name. So, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that we're supposed to be looking for? Are you the Son of God? And Jesus said, I am. I am. Now, we know that Jesus did not very often say publicly that he was the Messiah. And for good reason. We know the reason is, part of the reason is, that if he stood up in front of a crowd of people, let's let's take, for example, the feeding of the 5,000. You feed 5,000 men plus the women and the children who are there in a miraculous manner, they're all, they've all flocked to you for healing, to hear your teaching, and now you, like Moses, have fed them with bread from heaven, more or less. Right? You've multiplied this bread and fed a, in a n- numerous crowd of people. If Jesus stood up at that point and said, I am the, Messi- am the Messiah, he'd have an army at his back. Right? And in fact, John chapter 6 um, when Jesus fed the 5,000, says that he perceived that they were, they were about to seize him and make him king. And so he got out of there, right? The Messiah is supposed to be a king. So if Jesus had, wanted to, had said to a large crowd of people like that under those circumstances, he would have had people ready to follow him into Jerusalem with swords and anything they could pick up to fight the Romans. Um, but he didn't do that. <clears throat> there were occasions when he would say that he was the Messiah, like to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. But telling the Samaritan woman at the well that he's the Messiah is not going to cause an uprising. A lot of people aren't going to listen to her anyway, except other Samaritans, and nobody's going to listen to all those Samaritans. So there's no trouble there, right? When uh, When Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, he's just with his little small band of disciples, right? And he can kind of keep that under wraps. But here we are now, essentially at the end. No more fear of an uprising. Jesus has been abandoned by all of his disciples. He's standing before the chief religious leader of the Jews, and he gets asked the question, are you the Messiah? And Jesus does not hesitate. He says, yeah, I am. Yes, I am the Messiah. In fact, I'll do you one better. He says, and not only am I the Messiah... But you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. You're going to get a front row seat full of evidence that I'm the Messiah. Now, what is he 
talking about when he says this. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This is another one of those places where the people Jesus was talking to would know exactly what he was talking about. For us, we don't don't always catch these references very quickly. That's one of the reasons why it's really nice to have a Bible with cross-references or study notes or whatever. And if you have something like that, you'll see that Jesus is, without a doubt, referring to Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7. So, uh, in Daniel 7, uh, Daniel describes these, you know, beasts that he sees representing def- uh, uh, different kingdoms and whatnot. <clears throat> and then he has, in, in this vision, he sees um, the Ancient of Days, which is another way of referring to God. And he sees sort of the heavenly throne room, the heavenly court, and he describes the Ancient of Days and um, what's going on around him. There's a thousand thousand serving him, <clears throat> and uh, a the court sat in judgment and the books were open. And it's, this huge, it's this great judgment scene uh, in the presence of God. Uh, and then he says, um, in verse 13, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, so that's, there's a phrase that Jesus just used, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. <clears throat> So he's not a son of man, meaning he's not merely a human, but he's like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that's God, the Father, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Daniel has a vision of one like a son of man who comes on the clouds of heaven, is presented before God the Father, and he is given by God an eternal kingdom with dominion over all creation. And Jesus says, standing in front of the high priest, that vision is about me. And you're going to see that happening to me. You are going to see me coming with the clouds of heaven. You are going to uh, see me as the Son of Man. And you're going to see me at the right hand of power and Power there is another way of not using the name of God, right? Seated at the right hand of God is what he means by that. So you're going to see me seated at God's right hand, which is what Psalm 110 verse 1 said about the Messiah. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. You're going to see me seated at God's right hand, coming with the clouds of heaven. You're going to know that I am the Messiah. Now, when is that going to take place? That could be referring to, at the end, the final judgment at Christ's return. Um, It could be uh, a reference to uh, the resurrection, possibly, when Jesus is demonstrated to be the uh, Messiah and Son of God through his resurrection. Um, It's hard to pin that that down, but the, the point is, 
right, that they're going to know at some point, whether it's soon after Jesus says this or whether it's at Jesus' return, at some point they're going to know that Jesus was telling the truth. They're going to know that he is who he says he is. Uh, They're going to recognize that he's the Messiah, even though right now they want nothing to do with him. They don't believe he's the Messiah. They're trying to get rid of him. At some point, they're going to recognize that they've been wrong. When the chief priest hears this, verse 63 says, or the high priest, the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? Now, as um, one commentary pointed out that I was reading, there's, it was not blasphemy to claim to be the Messiah. Right? There were other people who claimed to be the Messiah. It's a uh, rather audacious claim, right? unless you're Jesus, but it's not blasphemy by itself. Probably what they considered, what the, chief, or the, the uh, high priest considered blasphemy is his claim that he would, he would be seen sitting at the right hand of God. Because that is essentially a claim to be equal with God, to share his power, to share his throne, to be in his position. That's probably the part of it that he considered blasphemous, though he could have been taking it, he was probably taking in the whole thing. But that part in particular is probably the most offensive part as far as the high priest would have seen it. So he hears Jesus say this, and he counts it as blasphemy. And so he says to the council, now it's time to cast your votes. What is your decision? You've heard him incriminate himself with these blasphemous words. What do you say? And the end of verse 64 says, they all condemned him as deserving death. They all heard that as a claim that... It's so clear a claim to equality with God that he deserved to die. And so at that point, the restraint that apparently had been exercised up to that point is removed. Verse 65 says, some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. So now that they've got their charge, they unleash the fury and rage against him that has been pent up in them for so long. I mean, as, I think it was at least as far back as Mark chapter 3, and maybe even earlier than that. But I think at least as far back as Mark chapter 3, they were trying to get rid of him. They were trying to kill him. They wanted him dead. It's, it's been a long time since then. And so once they've got the charge and the vote, now they begin to abuse him and mock him and humiliate him and pour scorn upon him and mock him. Uh, If you're the Messiah, you're some kind of prophet. Let's see if you can prophesy who's hitting you while you're blindfolded. Um, The guards begin abusing him as well. So they've got... They're charged. They've got their evidence. <clears throat> now they're ready to take him to Pilate uh, and see if Pilate will put him to death and fulfill their wishes, which they don't know will fulfill God's plan uh, and fulfill God's will that Jesus would take our place in his death. They don't know that, of course, 
but we know that even in this great evil, God is up to something better than what the evil people would ever have expected.